This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Two hot-button issues back in the news this week. Immigration, as the president puts forward a new proposal. Would remake the legal immigration system in this country to shift away from priorities for people who are relatives of those already here to people who are skilled and already speak English. And abortion, as the 2020 candidates react to a string of states passing new restrictions. This is nothing short of an all-out assault on women's reproductive freedom, an effort to take away our basic human rights and civil rights. Welcome once again to Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of polling and takes you inside the data to find the stories that they tell about people. I am joined once again by CBS News political contributor and producer, Leslie Sanchez. Leslie. Hi, Anthony. Leslie, the president, he's got a new immigration proposal. He is emphasizing in it skills-based immigration. Now, skills-based immigration tends to poll relatively well in CBS polling and maybe about 10 points higher than family-based immigration. Is this going to matter? Is this dead on arrival in Congress, as some suggest? You know, if anything, Anthony, I think this is really a starting point for the third way, right? If you think about how calcified this immigration debate has been for over 25 years, really not giving way one way or the other, you had, um, going back to President Obama and certainly under the current president, using executive authority to try to get immigration measures uh, pushed forward. What he's doing is resetting And I do think that's going to bring a lot of Republicans and and Democrats to the table. This is something that's going to be entirely run by Trump himself. But it's something that the president is correct in recognizing it needs to get done. The Republicans failed on getting health care done. They have to move forward on immigration or it will be that rallying cry, that detonation issue uh, for competitive races throughout the country. You mentioned the Republicans. I know that there's some talk that... Any proposal that doesn't limit overall immigration or that is seen as amnesty is something that the further right section of the Republican base will push away. And then on the other hand, on the Democratic side, anything that is seen as not addressing issues like DACA, the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals, or as I think Speaker Pelosi said, anything that that sort of pushes back against the idea of letting families come together is automatically seen as being ruled out. So within each party, they're trying to balance the the wings, the bases, and folks who, at least on this issue, issue might be labeled more more moderate. Exactly. And Anthony, you pointed to it in, in two parts, right? The current situation, Democrats are seen as lenient and for open borders. That's going to be the talking point on the right. The Republicans, on the other hand, especially under President Trump, are, Trump are seen as mean-spirited, 
you know, some of these measures and uh, not unifying families, separation of families, uh, the tragedies of, of children along the border. I mean, we can go on and on in terms of that. And it was only border enforcement, which is what the Republican voters wanted to hear, you know, shore up and close any compromised port of entry. But this is a, a reset that we talked about because it's saying, let's look at skills-based. The reason skills-based poll so well, kind of across the board. It's non-threatening and it seems fair and reasonable. People can agree U.S. wants to be competitive. What was not mentioned is what the Democrats and certainly Speaker Pelosi have mentioned. What about the Dreamers? What about the 11 to 12 million undocumented are here? If the president had started by saying, let's address that, then it would be really dead on arrival for Republicans. Instead of choosing a path that seemed inhumane and just border security, the president's saying, look, here's a way forward, recognizing Anthony. I think when they get to negotiating those issues of dreamers, of finding legalization, not necessarily citizenship, and certainly finding a more humane way to respect families and keeping them together, I think that's all going to be on the table. And, you know, what's interesting, Leslie, is that when you mentioned DACA, we do see that being one of the few things on immigration that actually Republicans or at least a lot of Republicans and Democrats agree on because it gets about 70 percent approval, the idea of giving some kind of path to either staying or citizenship to people who were brought into the country as children, not necessarily they didn't come in you know, by their own by their own will. And that, of course, speaks when you talk to Republicans in the polls, that speaks to the idea that these folks, when they were kids, they didn't break the law, you know, deliberately. Um, So that could be, in some respects, a starting point. But it also, I think, speaks to the idea that then out on the campaign trail, you've got Democrats who might not want to emphasize DACA and Dreamers all the time because then everyone else, all the other voters say, well, wait, are you prioritizing that over other issues that they do want to hear about, about health care, about jobs, et cetera? And, you know, what did they do back in D.C. while what when they're looking back at D.C. and saying, OK, this is what everybody back there is fighting about. What what kind of proposals you know, are they putting forward to say, here's how I would address the immigration issue if if I were elected president? Right. I, there's not a good alternative. Because if it, it if it's seen again, if the consensus is it looks like it's open borders, too lenient, letting everyone come in without paying a price, letting anybody who came here and that's currently undocumented have a free path to citizenship. That that issue, Anthony, that's where the rub's going to be, is how far does this measure go, especially when the Democrats talk about it. You're right about dreamers and, and young students and children who were brought here because it's seen as fair. It's the other examples of overstaying visas, you know, not having any restitution of perhaps criminal aliens that need to be addressed. That, that's where it's going to get technical. And if the Democrats don't look as they're really drawing some lines and some harsher lines in that sense, they're going to have a really difficult time, I would say, with certainly women voters and kind of soft Democrats who want to see stronger enforcement. And I think you said this word context. And one of the things that struck me when the president was speaking last week, he said that the U.S. hadn't made, in his view, a big change to immigration in 50 years. And, you know, I think he's referring back to the 1965 Immigration and Nationalization Act there. And one of the things you see in the data when you look at the amount of or the percentage of the U.S. population 
that was foreign born, the number of immigrants in the U.S. Since 1960, uh, and Pew has, these are Pew numbers, it has spiked. It has gone up fourfold. So it was, uh, they reported at 43.7 million immigrants in the U.S. as of uh, last year, I believe, and that's uh, 13.5% compared to 1960 when it was 9.7 million or just 5%. And what that says to me is that there are two different generations here that older voters who do happen to be more Republican these days, older voters see immigrants differently. They tend to see immigrants more as uh, drawing resources than as contributing to the country. Whereas the younger generation, many of whom we know tend to side with the Democrats, not only is a more diverse generation themselves, but also sees immigrants as contributing to the country. So there's this generational split for context behind all of this that speaks to not just how people perceive immigrants and what immigrants do in the country, but also to the way in which they might receive any any policy because of their experience, because they grew up in really two different countries. You're exactly right, Anthony, because it's demography um, at its finest, right? You talk about the two generations, but think about what's changed in that time. We went from very agriculture-based, industrialization, mass construction, to a time now that is more global. And what's fascinating, when the president is talking about merit-based visas and kind of on-ramping these individuals into our economy, he's saying that they're not going to be a drain on the safety net. He's saying two things. One, we're going to look at competitiveness. So it's not individuals, as the argument is seen by many who are anti-immigration, quite honestly, is that they're suppressing or reducing wages among working class voters especially in areas that have been hit by globalization and outsourcing all throughout the Midwest, actually throughout the country. And as the economies have changed, it's non-threatening to say we're bringing in more software engineers, you know, um, when every industry is being adapted and kind of disrupted from mining to agriculture, right? So the president is kind of soft-selling a non-threatening way to keep the U.S. competitive to also address the immigration issue, but keep the base focused um, abroad as to trying to, to, to take or, you know, limit the U.S. jobs here. Well, I say this not entirely glibly, uh, unless you're a software engineer, which, right. is, which, which is to say <laughs> that, um, you know, I mean, look, let's face it, a lot of times we, when we characterize who immigrants are, it can be much too facile, right? Immigrants... Right. Uh, are coming uh, to America with all sorts of different skill sets uh, from all kinds of different places, um, including those who are here on visas that specifically, you know, note they have a a particular skill. And, um, you know, you could see, and in fact, you do see various trade organizations and lobby groups who push for immigration reform because it does affect people of all skill sets and not just you know, oftentimes it sort of defaults, the characterization defaults to uh, low-wage labor. You know, and low-wage labor has changed so much, and there's so so much statistically that points to, you know, how we need a low-wage um, immigrant workforce. I mean, that's pivotal and critical for our economy, and it actually elevates wages and kind of pushes many people into customer service jobs, and, and it changes the dynamics of those jobs. But there's been a real hardening 
um, culturally of what immigration is. And on the extreme right, you have people trying to limit all immigration, legal or illegal. And on the left, you've seen it as just kind of allowing everybody to come in because of the plight and, and looking at it from the human perspective. But there has to be a really strong center. And the president's trying to reset that and say, this is where we should be looking for the next generation. And you, I think, Anthony, we can't put enough of a, a point on the fact you talked about the change in, you know, in the 45 years, there are more biracial individuals. People are, there's more bicultural individuals um, in, throughout the country. I mean, America just fundamentally looks different. And having respect for human dignity, having, a, you know, an understanding that there's a fair process, regardless of ethnicity, is fundamentally American. And Les- Leslie, let me just pause for a second and tell our, our listeners that sound you hear in the background is not us crunching the numbers. Uh, that is some construction that's going on here in the Bureau. We are uh, building a better podcast for, for everyone. So... Since you and I are tackling the big, tough issues here. In, <laughs> Let's in, just lean in, into that. In, in, in under Let's 30 minutes, um, <laughs> taking on the world's, the world's problems, we, uh, we've got another one that surfaced last week. I misspeak a little. It didn't surface last week, but it certainly came into the news and the headlines again. And that was abortion. Eight states have now passed bills uh, restricting abortion to some degree. Uh, Missouri passed one, quite notably, as well as one earlier last weekend in Alabama, among others. So here I look at sort of top line number, which is uh, almost too too simple of a question in, in the polls. But it, it it doesn't pick up all the nuance, but it's, you know, which comes closer to your view. People say abortion should be generally available, and that's 45 percent abortion available but under stricter limits and that's 33 percent and abortion not permitted and that's 22 so if you take the two available categories there you come away perhaps too in too facile a way of saying that a large majority wants abortion to be available in some form and you know about a fifth 22 percent says not permitted these new laws probably fall under that stricter limits category but of course there's a great deal of nuance uh within all of that so i'm curious how how you see this playing out because i mean it's clear that many observers think this is something that you know, uh, pro-life folks want to ultimately get up to the Supreme Court. That's the the strategy. I think they have a lot of conservative justices now. But on the campaign trail and as a public policy issue, is this something that both Republican and Democrats want to be talking about in the main? The right word you're saying is nuance uh, because it's going to vary. Here's the challenge. I think this is also going, if you look at your top lines and you start breaking it down by age, this is going to have a different type of perspective. So amongst older voters, they can harken back to a time when abortion was not readily available. And that started a lot of this conversation, especially on the state level. So Republicans, for for the most part, for over a generation have been saying, you know, let the states handle this. And that's what you're seeing now, right? Let the states handle this. But now there is this undercurrent to move this to the Supreme Court. I will say this. When you break it down by age, there are many more women voters now. There's many more um, voices that need to be heard that I don't necessarily think have been heard on the state level because in many ways, there's still an abundance of men making decisions about reproductive issues regarding women. 
And so just as a, you know, you speak as a, an American, then you speak as a woman, and then you speak as a Republican, or you can flip that around depending what the issue is. But there are many Republican women who are fundamentally pro-life but feel this is really not where they want the Republican Party to be. Well, to your to your exact point, um, if you look at people uh, in our latest polling anyway, under 30, you get a majority 54 percent fall into that first category of abortion generally available. And then that idea declines as folks get older, or at least among older people. And it's just 38 uh, percent about even with the stricter limits, uh, folks, among those who are over 65. So you're exactly right about the age and certainly folks, uh, generational effects too, who came, uh, who came of age when the politics of this were really heating up, obviously in the 1970s, as well as the 1980s, as, uh, the right to light movement really, um, took hold, uh, within the Republican party, especially. And, you know, the other part of this, Leslie, that you mentioned, uh, um, female, uh, female voters, that's obviously a group that, the Republican Party struggled with in 2018. There are age differences within that, of course. But, you know, if you see the same gender gaps here uh, in 2020 that you did in 2018, you know, that clearly does signal a uh, a difficulty for for Republicans. Absolutely. And and particularly the women you're talking about tend to be white suburban college-educated women or some education. That's the area that moves back and forth between elections. Because we know particularly that, you know, other women of color tend to fall more in the Democratic camp. They don't move as much. But these suburban voters are going to move on this. And and this, again, could be one of those detonation issues, meaning an issue that really gets them moving. It's not the number one priority for this woman, this female voter or her family. But she fundamentally feels there's something not fair about it. She doesn't like the optics of who's making that decision. She fears the dramatic turn this may have. And and that's why I'm saying for pro-life, evangelical, you know, charismatic Catholic individuals that this is really going to be their main issue, uh, the single issue voter, and Anthony, you can correct me, it's about what, 10 to 15 percent, 12 percent, somewhere in there that do that every election cycle. This is going to be great, but it's it, it's having a bigger impact on on the larger electorate. And, and I don't think we can easily assume where it's going to fall. Well, that's a great point to raise for listeners out there. And is that that single issue voter. I mean, this issue has been so important uh, for so many pro-life folks that even when when sometimes people ask me, well, wait a second, if a majority says one thing, why do all these state legislatures, you know, have the members to to pass a different kind of um, a different kind of bill? And a big part of the reason for that is that single issue voters not only vote for, in this case, pro-life folks who vote for those who are ardently pro-life, but they also turn out and they also vote in elections. And that matters a lot at the, especially at the state legislative level where turnout is often much lower than say a large election, like a presidential contest. So that's one sort of structural, you know, reason underpinning a lot of this. And look, the other, the other part of it is you know, here's an issue that, as you said, the the Democrats and Republicans weren't really talking about. I mean, they were talking about health care, which could obviously be connected. And they were talking about the economy and they were talking about, you know, economics and, and pocketbook issues. And this is here now sort of right on the table. You know, what what kinds of things? How does this affect the Democratic 2020 primary as well now that this issue is is right in front of them? 
Right. And for many Democrats, it was very difficult for them if, if they were pro-life to come forward and say that because it was almost like this is, the, you know, if you're going to believe this, you're going to fall in this camp. And it's more nuanced than that, especially when you're trying to relate to b- voters in suburban Pennsylvania, you know, and, and uh, some of these counties that are uh, very Catholic, they care about these issues, uh, but it's not going to be the top of mind. But if you make it an issue, they're going to take a stand. Um, fundamentally, and that's how the lens by which they're going to view these candidates. So it's never been one of those areas that the candidates, especially on the presidential, lead with. They say it's part of their platform. Uh, now there's going to be, I think, two things that happen. One, you will see, again, like we just saw in the last midterm, more women considering an effort to put their hat in the ring and run. Um, because they feel that there need there needs to be diversity of thought, Anthony, regardless of where you fall on this issue, in those chambers, caucuses, they need to have a more nuanced conversation about how restrictive we want to be, what do we fundamentally agree with, and 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 you need diversity of age, diversity of ethnicity, and certainly diversity of gender. All right. Well, much more to come. Leslie Sanchez, CBSN political contributor and producer and author of You've Come a Long Way, Maybe. Leslie, uh, this is always fun to talk with you and get your insights uh, from D.C. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Anthony. And that's going to wrap this episode of Where Did You Get This Number? I want to thank Leslie Sanchez for a great conversation as always. And I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank my intrepid producer, Alan Pang, for pulling this all together and everyone at CBS News Radio. Next week, we will be back again with the latest on the 2020 campaign trail, what the candidates have been out there saying and doing, as well as coverage from D.C. And once again, taking you behind the numbers to find the stories underneath. For now, I am Anthony Salvanto. Thank you once again for listening. Please give us a rating and subscribe if you liked what you heard. And I'll talk to you next Monday. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.